Welcome back to Inside the Oval, presented by Dignity Health. This week, I'm joined by Beth Atlas, who serves as the manager and curator of the 49ers Museum. Beth, how are you? Doing well. Excited to talk to you today and um, hopefully inform some people about the museum. To start with, can you explain what you do in your role as manager and curator of the 49ers Museum? Yeah, so um, pretty much I work with my team of two other full-time folks and some part-time staff to uh, run the 49ers Museum. Um, The manager part of my title refers to overseeing museum operations. I work closely with my museum coordinator to ensure that the space is clean and in working order and ready to welcome our guests. And the curator part refers to overseeing museum exhibits, the collection and content in the building. So really everything you see and hear in the museum while you're in the museum is what we consider content. And uh, I get to make sure that it's all good, positive 49ers stuff that's going to entertain our fans. In your position, you need to have an understanding of museum studies and curating, but also know the history of the organization and the rules of football. We actually were on the same team for an HR trivia night. So I can attest to the fact that you know 49ers history inside and out because you really carried our team. But what did you study to build the skills you need for your current position? Yeah, um, regards to that trivia night, I will say I know a lot about the 49ers. I don't want to um, say I know everything because I think there's always things to learn. I grew up in the Bay Area and I grew up a 49ers fans. Um, both my parents have had uh, working game functions for several years. So I knew a lot about the team sort of came into consciousness of it in the 90s um, with Super Bowl 29. So I know a lot since then, and especially now working for the team. I had a general idea of, you know, teams of the 80s and winning um, all those Super Bowls and like a very vague idea of the early history of the team. But I still had a lot, of, a lot to learn, which I did so by researching. My undergraduate degree is in history and my master's degree is in library science. So it's really a combination of knowing how to find information. And then once you have that information, how to disseminate it into something comprehensive. So when I first started as an intern back in 2013, much of my job responsibilities were focused on organizing the growing collection of artifacts that were coming in as part of the museum. So as I worked to identify the significance of those, since it wasn't always clear exactly what it was or who it uh, pertained to, I read a lot about the um, you know teams, players, and coaches through lots of Wikipedia articles, uh, digitized newspaper articles I could find online, a couple books I had for reference, and also a lot of profootballreference.com for stats, records, and playing careers of our guys. And I sort of I have a like a, a mind for trivia type information to call it back to that again. And I also love learning new things. So a lot of what I was taking in stuck, not only for whatever project I was working on specifically, but also just a general knowledge that has certainly come in handy um, as I progress in this role. One thing that we have in common is that we both have history degrees. You clearly use yours (laughs) way more than I use mine. But on that role, as someone who grew up in this area and then also went to school with that kind of focus. Did you want to work for the 49ers? Was that something that growing up you looked towards? Yeah, I mean, I liked sports um, a lot as a kid. I mean, I obviously grew up a fan. I was also a big fan of the Sharks when they came to town in the early 90s and the Giants too. Um, I played soccer a lot growing up and it was the years of the the women na- women's national team. Um, they won the gold medal in 96 and then the World Cup in 99 was sort of my heyday in soccer too. So I think at some point, I definitely wanted to be on the national team as a goalie. 
who didn't <laughs> clearly didn't pan out but I think I kind of wavered a lot in between working in sports and working in other industries actually in in high school I was a student athletic trainer with my school's athletic department and so I first I started at school majoring in athletic training that's why I chose Purdue an Indiana State school for this California girl. Some people question that, but I think it, um, it, in choice of university, I really wanted to go somewhere with like an established big sports program and Purdue obviously has that. So I think I, I always had that aim to work in sports. I never thought I could do it in a museum capacity since other than really Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton and then Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, I didn't really know about sports museums. So when I switched into history, I always uh, the kind of the goal was to work in a museum. And I think the fact that it's the 49ers museum is just a very happy accident of my two passions. So never, never something I thought I could do, but something I'm very glad to do. Absolutely. Speaking of the pro football hall of fame, were you able, it's something that I have always wanted to go to and experience. Have you been able to get there? Uh, I have not been there. I've only been in Ohio once driving through. Actually, stopped at a different museum, but that's another story. <laughs> I do work, um, I've worked with uh, some of their staff members in the past. I'm on a, a board of directors with their vice president of exhibits in a, in a sports heritage association that were part of the International Sports Heritage Association. So I've definitely heard a lot about their work and seen a lot of photos and talked to some of their staff, um, but I've physically been there myself. Definitely on the bucket list. I mean, I, I like what they do because obviously that's sort of the, uh, the mecca of pro football. And, you know, they have like probably the best collection since they have the best access to, you know, all the top names in the game. And certainly the the hall, actual hall with all the busts is something to, a sight to behold. Um, so I'm really, I'm really looking forward to eventually going there. And, and we should petition yeah. for a field trip or something. We should, yeah, we'll go, we'll go <laughs> stay at Youngstown again, like the team did a couple of years ago. The 49ers Museum has its own Hall of Fame. And the Edward J. DeBartolo Senior Hall of Fame. And the gallery has life-size statues of some of the greatest figures from the organization's history. And you actually get to work really closely on the process of the creation of the statues and then their placement and putting them into the hall. Can you talk about that experience and the process? Sure. Um, so yeah, with the um, 49ers Hall of Fame, which uh, to give a little bit of history, that was sort of the starting point for what became the 49ers Museum. When they were developing Levi Stadium. Ownership decided that they wanted a physical place for the Hall of Fame, which was established in 2009, as well as a space that could host field trips, which eventually turned into our, our current EDU program. And with the Hall of Fame, they wanted to do something unique to honor our inductees. And uh, the architectural firm that was hired to design the museum space also served as um, consultants in how to build a museum. And they suggested this uh, firm in Brooklyn, New York called Studio Ice, who focuses on life-size sculptures. And, and they did uh, Independence Hall in Philadelphia, they did life-size statues of the founding fathers. And so you could sort of walk amongst yourselves and kind of um, put yourself right next to those great minds. And then uh, the develop museum development team decided to do that for Hall of Famers with the same concept of life-size statues that you could walk amongst and like put yourself right next to Bill Walsh, put yourself in the huddle with a million dollar backfield. So starting with the process. So uh, once the new, when we opened, we had uh, 24 statues that were all created at the same time. And then Coach George Seifert was our first 
our first inductee into the physical mu- uh, museum space in 2014, we added his statue. And since then, we've added three, Charles Haley, Tom Rathman, and Terrell Owens. And so with those latter three as sort of a one-off project, once the inductee is selected, we work with Studio Ice to establish what the statue's pose is going to be. For those of you that have seen it or have seen photos, each statue is um, either in his signature pose or in something that's going to be very recognizable for people coming through. And we have to figure out if the selected pose is going to work from like a balance standpoint, since a lot of these statues are freestanding, they have to have a certain weight distribution to make sure they don't tip over or anything like that. So that's working uh, using a lot of reference photos to figure out how to depict this individual, both in an effective way and a way that's going to be doable from their standpoint. So that that's a collaborative effort there. And then once the pose is selected, they have to start on the figure creation. So with recent inductees, they've been able to travel to Studio Ice for additional reference photos and even um, some live casting. Uh, like I know we've produced some videos with Rathman and Terrell Owens, seeing them covered in plaster with a little breathing hole or big nods <laughs> in there. Um, kind of what I find amazing with, with at least those two is that they're still in their playing shape for the most part. And so there's really not a whole lot of difference to be done when they're sculpting their figure. So from that, they use like a steel structure to give the shape and then the live casting plaster to fill out the limbs. The faces are meticulously sculpted out of clay for better accuracy and for like very minute changes. Cause I think when you're trying to get that detailed of a look from someone, even something as simple as, you know, make the corners of their mouth slightly higher or, you know, their nose needs to be just a bit flatter or showing slightly more teeth can really make all the difference in the finished product. I just remember with uh, going through all the, because we did the first 25 all at once. And so we would just get like batches of photos and sort of sit in a group and collaborate and say like, oh, well, you know, Steve's mouth needs to be like a little less O-shaped. <laughs> something. So just very small things like that, which is a huge challenge when you're doing 25 at once, but is slightly easier when you get down to just uh, the one-offs that we've been doing every other year so far. How much input does someone like Tio or Rathman have in the final product or in the, my mouth is less O-shaped? <laughs> I can always speak to those, those like tiny detail ones. I know with their poses, usually they'll give studios to say, okay, based on these photos you gave, we can make, you know, these four work. And so like those four as in terms of like making a proper figure that's going to be balanced and everything. Then they'll send it back to the inductee, even our team to select. They do, they'll have some input. I remember um, Rathman sent his, he and his wife selected one that they liked and then sent it around to their family. And then the family ended up choosing the same one that they picked. So what you see in, uh, in the museum is Rathman family approved. And you said that they're steel structure, plaster, and clay. How much on average do these sculptures weigh? They're usually about the same weight as the player would be. So in addition to, in addition to sort of those base materials, once those are done, they would go into costuming because the, the figures are dressed in like actual pads, helmets, jerseys, shoes. I will note that nothing historical goes into the statue if we can avoid it. I think John McVeigh gave us a pair of loafers that went into his statue and uh, Nike sent us some for Jerry Rice's shoes. But for the most part, everything is either sculpted out of clay or recreated by a costumer because once it goes in the statue it's not coming out (laughs) (laughs) i'm curious the gallery incorporates the biggest names from this organization have you seen one statue that people are more drawn to or is the most popular to have their photo taken with um 
I think people really are drawn to the catch statue. Um, yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, I think, um, you know, even, even before Dwight passed, it's just such, it's just so incredibly iconic. And just the fact that visually it's higher than everybody else. People are really drawn to it. They also really like the Jerry Rice statue because he's right there, arms out. And then uh, Montana and Walsh are posed together right in front of our Amber logo wall, um, which is a really great photo op for people. But, you know, everyone has their favorites. You know, our older set, like our guys played in the Keysar days, like Soltau and St. Clair. One of my favorites, not that I really have favorites, is Leo Molina. <laughs> as, as a player, he was just an absolute beast. And so seeing him there is, is pretty cool because he's on that bench with Charlie Cougar. It's a good seated photo op. Speaking of the creation of the Hall of Fame and the statues, you started with the 49ers right before Levi Stadium opened and were able to help set up the museum as we know it today in its current venue. What was that process like? And what's the hardest thing about designing and opening a museum in a new location? So when I started in uh, February 2013, Levi's was still mostly just a steel structure. Um, so you could like you could stand in the museum space and see out to what would become the field. Um, and it was a, like that for most of the time or for the first you know year or so I was there. And during the construction of the actual stadium, the museum was developing on paper. When I arrived, there was a general concept and, and design that had been established by the um, museum development team, which I will say... Everybody on that team had a um, another function within the 49ers organization, and then they took on developing the museum sort of as like a, a side project. So as an intern, I was kind of the only dedicated museum staff member, which was really cool because like even as an intern, I got to participate in meetings and, um, and pitch ideas like gallery names or specific years of eras, which which meant a lot to me just as a fan and as an intern, you know, that like people were asking my opinion of things and one of my feedback. So that was, that was pretty cool um, to like play that integral part of um, that integral of a part in the development of the museum. And I would say like uh, sort of the challenges of that was the museum was literally started from scratch. Um, we didn't have a previous 49ers museum. And so the, uh, as I, I said earlier, um, Cambridge seven, who was the architecture firm on the project and also served as consultants on like how to build a museum kind of like walked us through the steps and then helped us, determine what, what needed to be taken where um, and sort of like the things to include. And also the museum development team did a lot of uh, like background research, visiting other sports museums, Canton among them. Also uh, the Patriots Hall of Fame in Foxborough, which was also designed by Cambridge 7, um, was another one that we looked to to sort of see things that they did that we thought we might want to integrate into our museum. And I think... Uh, Overall, with the challenge was also how to tell the story of a 49 of the 49ers in a multifaceted museum. You know, we always wanted it to be high tech, but also have sort of a, a low tech feel um, to get sort of that artistic aesthetic of the team in there. And we also wanted to create a space that was going to be for the diehard faithful fans, as well as those who don't know anything about football. So trying to find that balance and really incorporate the most important facts about the 49ers, um, sort of like what are people expecting to see? And also what do we want to sort of surprise them with, like the little known stuff? I think overall uh, that challenge was to uh, to do it right and to be the best. And uh, luckily there was a lot of support from management and ownership in that endeavor. So we were able to, I think we did it right so far and um, that we are among the best sports museums in the country. 
I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously everything is, it's always changing. I think I listened to um, Tara Lloyd's uh, Inside the Oval and he said, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And I think that uh, that's definitely applies to the museum, you know, always looking to um, improve and add new things that we, we, we think fans want to see. Yeah. And that's what I really like about the 49ers museum is that it does have such a mix of mediums. There's the traditional museum staples, the artifacts, statues, trophies, Bill Walsh's entire office. And then there are also interactive games, a theater and education center as a team, the 49ers who are located in Silicon Valley how did you go about incorporating, or still to this day, incorporating new technology to enhance guest experience at the museum? Yeah, I think with the technology, on the technology front, um, we wanted to integrate it into every gallery, you know, whether it's like a touchscreen interactive or like a timed show mode to change the atmosphere of a gallery. We didn't want it to necessarily be the only focus, but we definitely wanted uh, technology to play a big factor in how we presented our information to our guests. Um, you know, in some cases we have digital takeaways where you can email a photo or video that you captured of yourself, um, to your own email account or like share it to social media. And, you know, one of my favorite things is the augmented reality screen in the lobby that we call you are a niner. And that's the one where you're, you're standing, uh, in our lobby and then projected on the screen as a video recording of a player or alum or sourdough Sam. Um, and it makes it feel like they're standing right next to you in the lobby. That one was purposefully designed uh, for guests to notice right away and to immediately engage them in our content. Um, it's also really fun to see people's reactions when they don't realize, you know, like, oh, it's Jimmy G that's, you know, right there. And they, they look to the side and are very surprised to see that. Or also uh, some of them speak and you kind of get like a little bit of a, a jump moment when you don't realize <laughs> that you hear Jerry Rice's voice, but you don't see him anywhere. Yeah, you definitely, when the lobby augmented reality is something you notice right away, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of where you are, even if you're like, oh, even if you don't notice it's a player at first and you're just like, oh, it's me. Yeah. And then it kind of all comes, becomes clear. On the flip side of that, I think it took me two plus years to realize that the footballs on the ceiling in the Heritage Gallery are footballs to represent all of Jerry Rice's touchdowns, <laughs> which, I mean, I guess that just shows how unobservant I am. But are there other features in the museum that people don't notice right away, are a little more intuitive, or that you like to point out to guests? Yeah, I think um, with, you know, Jerry Rice's footballs, there's 206 balls hanging from the ceiling to represent each touchdown he made as a 49er. And that that statistic includes uh, regular season and postseason. I think uh, when you look up the number for career touchdowns, it's 208. But that was made across his career. And it's only regular season. With all of our stats in the 49ers museum, it's what they did as a 49ers player. So, you know, a couple guys who've made a name for themselves both on our team and on another NFL franchise. We just wanted to focus on their 49er stuff. And that includes the postseason since a lot of them had pretty extensive postseason careers. And again, with those footballs, uh, we, we special order them from Wilson. And um, since all the NFL footballs feature the commissioner signature, uh, we didn't want to have Roger Goodell on there because Jerry didn't play under Goodell. He played under Pete Rizal and Paul Tagliabue. So the, um, the signatures on those footballs corresponds to the number that Rice made under each commissioner. So that's 
probably a fact that no one would ever guess since I don't even think some of them are visible from the ground. No, I just learned that right now. And it's so cool. But I know they're there. And that helped me sleep better at night. So. Uh, and I will say also the um, the architectural theme of the museum with those large white curved walls was designed to represent the spiral of a football being thrown. And that's a nod to our West Coast offense legacy and what the 49ers have contributed to the game of football there. So it's it's really only visible like from the lobby when you kind of look at if you were to look at it from like a bird's eye view without the uh, ceiling there, you'd sort of see that it kind of folds in on itself as a spiral. I didn't know that one either. I This is so fun. I'm learning so much. Earlier we talked about, or I mentioned Bill Walsh's office. What goes into recreating an iconic piece like that, but also something that is a piece of history itself? So Bill Walsh's office is an amalgamation of the offices he had um, with the 49ers, both as a head coach and later as an executive. Um, and sort of the main, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, the, the main inspiration for that space um, was Bill Walsh's office in Redwood City when the team, um, they practiced there from the 1950s through 1988. And I don't think they ever changed the the wood paneling and shag carpeting in there. <laughs> Um, and actually a really fun, another fun story is that the 49ers vacated that building in 88. And it went back to Redwood City to oversee. And it was previously a senior center. And the director of the senior center as of 2013 um, still had that same wood paneling and shag carpeting that inspired version in our museum. So we actually were able to take one of our fabricators up there to photograph for better matching to recreate it for our museum. Um, And that building actually was recently torn down to be rebuilt into a more community-focused building. And I know the NFL alumni NorCal, Northern California chapter, has offices near there. So there'll be some integration of the history of that space, you know, as the the front office of the 49ers for several decades. Wow. We incorporated there. Going back to Walsh. So we had the inspiration for the look of it from some footage that NFL Films had. And we recreated it based on um, some screenshots of that. The... Furniture in the building, um, including the the desk, meeting table, and chairs, were all owned by the 49ers and were used by Walsh, both as a, as a head coach and as an executive. And a lot of the artifacts are on loan from the Walsh family. The design of the office isn't tied to one specific date because you'll see playbooks in there from like you know eighty five and nineteen eighty eight seasons, and also some of his like uh, recreational equipment. Like there's a tennis racket in there. He's an avid tennis player and a golfer. We also added trophies into the office space, which Bill Walsh was a pretty humble guy and wouldn't have those things on display like that. But we just wanted to make sure we gave people a full view of Walsh as a person. Well, yeah. And even if he didn't have trophies in his own offices, we got to give the man credit now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure asking you this is going to be like asking someone to pick a favorite child. So you can decline. But do you have a favorite gallery or artifact that you have worked with since you started with the 49ers? Yeah, I don't like to say I have a favorite. Um, (laughs) For that exact reason, I don't want anyone to feel bad or feel like um, something is less. Um, But I will say I spent the majority of my time developing the Heritage Gallery, um, which is the most artifact heavy one. Um, 
I mean, that space was, it was literally blank walls we had to fill. And so it was um, working with our development team um, and our designers to figure out what artifacts we had or could source to tell the most compelling stories in team history. And then from there, we had to base it, what went on the walls based on the size of the space we had, um, which are broken down by eras in team history. So obviously like the team, the 80s wall is a little bit larger than the 70s wall since that was a much more impactful decade for us. And we also had to figure out which artifacts were placed where based on what the artifact was, because we didn't want to put, you know, do go chronologically and have three jerseys together and then a football and then a helmet. Um, we wanted to, to mix it up within the era to sort of give a better visual aesthetic for people walking through. So that you'll notice that when you're, when you walk through heritage and you look at our reader rail, things are, they're not listed chronologically within their era but we sort of got those sort of condensed down to their wall space. And also with the artifacts, I had to had to measure every artifact down to an eighth of an inch and photograph it from different angles so that the fabricators can make custom mounts remotely since we didn't ship our entire collection out as some folks, some of their previous clients had done. We wanted to make sure that everything we accumulated was staying in our facility. How often, especially in the Heritage Gallery, are things added just because there is such an immense and rich history within the organization? How often do things have to like fluctuate and do you have to remeasure everything down to an eighth of an inch to add new things in? Yeah, I think we haven't um, really made any huge changes to Heritage yet. And I'll I'll touch on that in a minute because we're pretty confident in what we're showing there. Um, If we were to redo it, then everything would have to be I don't, we never do like a full-on gallery review, but if we did like a section of wall, um, like most likely to add some stuff in the past few years, we would have to, again, measure everything. But it would be a much smaller project to complete. And so knowing when we went into the design of the museum, knowing that Heritage was sort of be not, not set in stone, but somewhat permanent display, we have the trending gallery in the lobby and our changing gallery um, after team gallery that allows us to do more um, fluid exhibits. So with trending, it's purposely designed to change and to put up new artifacts as they come in, um, especially it related to the most recent season, if that's if we're in season then. So like with 2019, we were able to get Dre Greenlaw's jersey from his epic stop in Seattle in week 17. So that was up, I think, Monday or Tuesday after that game. Wow. So that's pretty cool. And then we got a, um, a really cool pair of cleats they were custom painted for George Kittle after our first playoff game in Levi Stadium that went up on the wall right away. And with our changing gallery, that allows us to sort of branch off a little bit from the 49ers sort of core history and talk about things we might not have a lot of space to elaborate on or to um, correspond and exhibit to an upcoming event. So when we hosted Super Bowl 50, we did a more extended exhibit about um the 49ers in the Super Bowl with some more artifacts. So in addition to, you know, the five Lombardi trophies and our championship rings, we got to show a couple other cool things from those five games. When we had our 70th anniversary, we did an exhibit about 49ers who had served in the military, primarily during World War II in Korea when the team was just getting started in the Bay Area. Um, a lot of our roster members had um, served in the military, um, often interrupting or delaying their football careers. And then for um, college football playoff, we have an exhibit on um, Bay Area college football and sort of the um, a few teams around our area that are either still exist or used to exist and have um, pretty compelling histories. The goal with that, with the changing exhibit, is to 
um, still connect back to the 49ers, but not necessarily have to focus on just our history. Yeah, I really liked that one around CFP time. I am not from the Bay Area. I am a transplant. So that was it was really cool for me to go through that history just because it's such a rich sports history that I don't think everyone realizes. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the idea we want to do, you know, with all of our content. Like we are we are the 49ers museum, but we're not just for 49ers fans. We're for football fans. We're for people who don't know anything about football. And then invites another challenge of how do you how do you satisfy that large um, range of folks? Like how do you how do you inform somebody about football without talking down to them? Um, to you know someone who's been a, a diehard fan since they're a child. Um, and I think we I think we struck that balance really well. Well, speaking of striking the balance between have with having a really large fan base or a lot of people come through the museum. I don't know if everyone knows this, but the museum is actually open on game days when Levi Stadium is allowed to have fans on game day. What is the atmosphere like on a game day in the museum? I unfortunately have not been able to get down there on a game Sunday, but I feel like it's it's a really exciting place yeah, to be. Yeah, I mean, without being biased, I think it's definitely an exciting place to be pregame. Um, we're open in the, the three hours um, before kickoff. So once um, gates are open until 15 minutes before kickoff to make sure everyone has time to get to their seats. And that's in addition to our regular operations, um, which are Friday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. when we are allowed to be open to the public. I think game day is much different because we're seeing a lot more people in just three hours. I think usually we'll hit anywhere between 700 to 1,200 people. We broke our record in 2019. We had 1,600 plus people come through, which is really exciting for us. I know many of the folks coming through on game day are 49ers fans. Um, They're really pumped up for the game. For some, it's their first 49ers game. So coming to the museum is just like an added added bonus for them um, in anticipation of watching an actual game. And we also get a lot of visiting fans who are complimentary of the space um, since they enjoy it as a football museum, not necessarily as the 49ers museum. And what's really cool, especially I'm sure on game day, as a non-game day, it's really fun too. But when you get to the end of the pathway, you hit the Lombardis and the championship rings. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm sure that just like sets the mood or the tone for the game to come. But I'm curious, for the championship rings, when a team wins the Super Bowl, do they request another ring for their museum? Or how did you, like, who did you steal those from? So we didn't steal them because we don't steal any (laughs) artifacts, Haley. Uh, (laughs) uh, Those rings are actually, I don't know if you remember, before uh, 4949 in the front office building, there was a large display case that previously displayed the trophies. They had a couple team photos in there. And they also had a set of rings, which are now in the museum. Those used to travel with the trophies when they went out to special events. So luckily, there was already a set created that we were able to um, commandeer for our space to give people a really um, up-close look at that. Because they don't make Super Bowl rings anymore. I mean, I know it's cliche to say they break the mold, but I think once they're done, they break the mold. So uh, recreating one would be a heck of a challenge. So going forward with our NFC rings that we one in 2012 and 2019, we did just purchase an extra ring for the museum. And that's fascinating. I was wondering because for before the museum was there, I was just assuming that you got the ring from someone who would loan it to the museum or there was that extra. But especially for 2019, if you guys were allowed to order an extra 
Yeah, we were um, permitted. So with uh, Jostens has our order. I'm not I'm not 100% sure when those are coming out. Um, but once they do, I think once the players receive theirs, um, we'll have ours come through and we'll show it off once we're allowed to open to the public again. Speaking of that, uh, looking at the realities of this year, unfortunately, you guys haven't been able to have guests at the museum. How have how's your team pivoted really to bring the museum and its stories to the faithful in a digital space? Yeah. So since we haven't had any guests um, since March, we have taken this opportunity to engage with fans digitally. We continue to work with our social media team to put out posts that highlight significant moments in team history, especially this year where we've tied we've tied a post a significant moment in history called Greatest Moments um, with our upcoming 2020 opponent which is kind of cool to go back and see maybe not like less obvious ones but you know sort of like the hidden gems um that are in there that we don't necessarily get to talk about in the museum we get to throw a cool clip or cool photo up there um to share with fans and we're also still putting out um articles in the digital game day programs um that would normally be in the printed version um but specific to this year We've started the long-form article series, which allow us to elaborate on stories we already touch on in the museum, um, but to really go into more detail on these subjects. Since it's not always conducive to stand in a museum and read an essay, these long-form articles allow our fans to do so at their leisure on 49ers.com. So the first one we published um, a few weeks ago was about Wally Yonamine, who was the first player of color on a 49ers roster, and also the first player of Japanese descent to play professional football. So even though he only played one year with the team in 1947 and then went on to a um, professional baseball career in Japan, he was just representative of a time in team history when we were just really trying to establish ourselves as a football team, um, regardless of someone's background. And so what his legacy, the even though he was only there for a year, morphed into the Perry Onamine Unity Awards, um, which is a, a multifaceted award given by our community relations department, both as a grant opportunities for local organizations, as well as um, a player on the team who's, who really focuses on bringing the locker room together with their attitude and with their personality. We just recently released another article about Joe Perry again and his relationship to early 49ers founder and owner, Tony Morbido. They had an interracial friendship uh, that was based on football and the family atmosphere of the team in the late 40s and 50s. And that was really um, Tony Morbido helping set a precedent of acceptance on the 49ers just really amongst his team and also helping Joe manage the racial tensions he encountered on the field and on road trips. Um, So again, just I think a lot of work and education that the team and organization is doing nowadays, um, it's sort of a callback to um, our history and ways that we were able to, to emulate the precedent that was set early on. And what I've really liked about the two articles or long forms that have come out thus far is the are incredibly relevant today with all of the issues that we're facing just culturally, globally. And so I think that's been really important. They're, they're inspiring stories of people who have become before us. Good. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I think we do like to provide as much background as we can on these players because they do. I mean, they, they are our heroes, like, you know, to, to our fans and just because they play great football and they create great memories for us. But I think being able to see who they are on and off the field is really important. Um, I like that we do a lot of our stuff, you know, with our social media and digital teams do that with the way our team gives back to the community when we get stories about that. 
Um, and just again to show how multifaceted they are and how the, the 49ers, yes, they're a football team, but they're also part of the community. And like you said, this a lot of the issues we face today aren't new. Like they're manifesting in new ways, but they're not new to our society. And so I think just being able to connect, using our long-form articles to connect the past to the present, you know, it fulfills our goal as a museum um, and also hopefully provides insight for those who read it. And for... The people who haven't read them yet, go read them. For people who have read both of them, it's not going to end at two, right? There are more coming. Yeah, we'll have a few more. Um, I think we're going to focus on or touch on female leadership in our organization, um, both starting with Jane and Josephine Morabito, who are the um, widows of the Morabito brothers, who um, had ownership of the team for about 20 years collectively and sort of their impact on the game there and in the front office. And then also, of course, Denise DeBartolo York, who's been our co-chair for, for 20 years and sort of the leadership that she has inspired um, among our employees and also in the league. And then we'll focus on Bill Walsh and his relationship with Dr. Harry Edwards um, and sort of the, the early uh, diversity initiatives they brought to the team in the 1980s, prominently the uh, Bill Walsh Coaching Diversity Fellowship that he established, um, and how that's now a league-wide initiative that I think we all can take some pride in, in the work that they do there. Absolutely. I think one of the things, one of the many, many, many things that I am very proud of to work in this organization for, they are in many regards, either at the pinnacle or at the forefront of a lot of initiatives in the community, in diversity, in our history and today. So I think the museum is really cool because it showcases that in the long forms today and in the new galleries or new artifacts that go up and facts that you give to social media, it does incorporate and show how rich that history is to football, to the organization and to society. Yeah, and I think that's, um, you know, one of our, again, our goals and our mission is to be a place for 49ers community. You know, you can come here and learn about the team, but we also, you know, like to support our community relations department when they host events. We volunteer ourselves as a venue for them. Giving back is very important to us. Um, we, The 49ers Museum is a business, but we also um, value our contributions that we can give to the team and our community at large. So also on the digital front, um, we have a virtual tour of the museum coming soon. You'll be able to explore galleries at your own pace online and um, hopefully pick up a, co- a couple of new facts you might not have seen when you were in the space. Or if you haven't had the opportunity yet to visit the 49ers Museum, uh, you'll be able to do so from your device. That tour is going to be hosted on levistadium.com slash museum. Um, and just keep an eye out on our social media accounts for when that goes live. I'm really excited for that. I didn't know that was happening. Yeah, it's it's a surprise. We're here. Um, yeah, we're, we're waiting for the finished product to roll out. Um, and we want to announce it. And we'll obviously do some um, media stuff around there. Did you just go through and film everything? Yeah, we went through with the photographer and a 360 camera. Um, so it's sort of like a, it's a walkable it's like Google Street View, but you're inside in the museum. Um, and we're also going to have a couple things that you can like, you know, click on and find a little bit more information. So it's it's the best experience of the 49ers Museum we can provide p- for people um, while we're closed. Um, since we, we miss all of our guests coming through. Um, we miss hearing their 49ers stories. Um, I know a lot of our docents 
are 49ers fans and they just love talking to people about the 49ers and about football and just really um, a meeting of the minds and sharing of stories is also what we, we strive to do in our space. Well, for anyone who hasn't been, once everything opens back up, go to the 49ers Museum. It is so cool. I have been a lot and I find something new every time. But Beth, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. No one else in this organization really has a similar function to you. So it is so fascinating to hear about what you do and how you really build our history into something that fans can engage with and enjoy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to do the work that I do. I'm very happy to share with all of our 49ers fans out there.